Today, I'm talking with a coach and speaker whose work is all about making an instant emotional connection with people through storytelling. She has been featured on Forbes, the BBC, and Mashable, and can be seen in a variety of wigs at yesyesmarsha.com. My guest is Marsha Shandor. I'm Aidan Nepom, and this is The Changed Podcast. Marsha, hello. Welcome to the Changed Podcast. Thank you for having me. For people who don't know what it means to have an instant connection through storytelling, what is it exactly that you help people with? Well, the instant connection part, you know, when you go to an event, and especially if it's an event where you don't know anyone and you're a bit nervous. And for me, there's always like my beast in my ear is being like, everyone else has got friends and you haven't, you loser, and they're all going to think you're a loser. And then you're kind of standing around chatting and then somebody tells a story about something and you're like, I love you, new best friend. That feeling, that's what storytelling does. And so if you're, that's nice when you're having a one-to-one conversation, but if you're speaking on stage to 3,000 people or on your mailing list to 250,000, mm-hmm. you know, plus people um, or on social media to 7 billion people potentially, um, that's how you can make that instant connection because it doesn't, always have to be two-way. I, I, I love that. Storytelling is very hot right now. Uh, everyone's talking about storytelling and not everyone means it in this context of a human standing up on stage telling a story. I do a lot of consulting with brands um, who want to work on story, but what they mean is something a little bit different than this definition of storytelling, which I find really interesting. Totally. People are often like, I want to tell my business a story. And I'm like, did a thing happen to your business that you would like to describe? <laughs> Because if it didn't, that's not a story. That's a message. <laughs> I don't, I'm not right. rude to them, clearly. <laughs> Potential clients. You know, um, right, of course. We're always kind when we speak to people. But, you know, it, but that makes sense. And, because... and humans, yeah. Um, but, yeah, people do often use story. They're like, what's the story? And it's, it is funny how it is such a buzzword at the moment. And people do use it to mean so many different things. Whereas for me, I am pretty much always use it to mean describing a thing that happened to you. But in a way, you know, yeah. ideally in a way that's engaging and makes people like you more and understand you better and want to ha- want to work harder for you and be more loyal to you and all of those things. What uh, what originally drew you to storytelling? When did the, well, when did it all begin? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it all began growing up in a household full of Russians. Um, I moved from Russia to London, England, when I was two, and um, I now live in. Toronto, Canada, where there is another London nearby, which is why I have to say London, England. Um, and uh, so I moved from Russia when I was two. And, and if you are Eastern European or you know any Eastern Europeans, you'll know that the currency is storytelling. So everybody just talks in stories all of the time. When I call my mum, she doesn't say, hi, darling, how are you? She says, so there I am in the Gare du Nord and I see that my train is leaving in two minutes. And um, But I was always the person telling stories that went on for 45 minutes my friends all having their heads in their hands being like can you just get to the point Marsha and um and then I became a DJ on music radio and I suddenly oh. had to cut my stories from 20 minutes down to 20 seconds because after 20 seconds the jingle kicks in and you have to stop talking because someone else is so that was where I really learned how to but I still didn't I sort of didn't even click that I was into storytelling or knowing storytelling and then I discovered 
uh, I discovered This American Life podcast through my friend David Berkeley, who was on it, and instantly fell madly in love. And then through that, I discovered the Moth podcast and the Moth, oh, um, if you don't know, is a yeah, storytelling wonderful. show across North America, I think now across the world. And just became obsessed with it and, and and went to see one when I was in New York and then bought, at the time it was like you could only buy a pack of 10 CDs with 14 stories on each CD. And I just listened, binged them all for three months. And, and then I thought there has to be something like this in London. And so I dug around and I found this show called True Stories Told Live. And I went and I told a story about my grandma and I found it to be such a profound experience. Um, she had died three years before, and I felt like I got to spend time with her. And now I know the neurology behind what's happening when you tell a story, which is that your brain responds as if the story is happening to you. It also happens when you're listening to a story. So not only did I get to spend time with her, but so did everybody else in that room. And that I know it's really wild. fascinating. I, <laughs> so I love that. You know, I, in the realm of work that I do, a lot of it comes from improvisation, not a lot, not all of it, um, but a lot of it. And uh, it's exciting when there's brain research to tell you why it's so helpful or what's so appealing, why it's so compelling. And so that's very cool that it's it, your part of your brain is like there, which makes oh, sense. Cool. You have all these pictures that show up yeah. in your brain. But also your um, your mirror neurons are making you feel, you know, the same yes. emotions and often the same physical sensations. Like if somebody tells us a story about, I don't know, somebody going to say something disgusting. So if you easily wince, then block your ears. But somebody like taking a pair of scissors and putting it between their fingers. We wince, right? We, you just cringed. But that's because so, your mirror neurons made you feel it. Like nothing happened. You could see that I was just using another pair of fingers as a pair of scissors. <laughs> like I was safe. True. But you still, that's true. we flinch because our, because that's, it's called transference. And it's when we feel like the story is happening to us. And just in terms of, and I'm sure you've had this with improv as well. There's so many things that I used to feel instinctively um, that now I've learned the brain science behind. And I'm like, that's what I always said. I mean, one of the things I always used to say, so, so hang on, pause on that for a second. Um, and I'm writing, writing myself a note so I come back to it. So I, this, this show, True Stories Told Live, I loved it. I went every month. And then when I moved to Toronto, they had a few offshoots in different cities in the UK. And I asked if I could start one in Toronto and, and I started it in a tiny cafe and three people came to the show and it was my, my dear friend, my best friend and my mum. And, um, but then it grew kind of, I think because I intended after having run events disastrously for years, I intended to pick the smallest cafe and not care if anyone came. So it, of course, <laughs> is the most successful thing I've ever done. But it kind of grew very quickly to about 150, 200 people per show every month. And, wow. and, and I was coaching all the storytellers and and I also had decided not to be a radio DJ anymore when I moved to Toronto. And and then through that, I now do that for my work. So I kind of figured out that I was really reverse engineering because I had no I kind of I was like, I know I tell stories and I had to do a lot of sitting down and being like, well, how do I do it and what am I doing? And and um, and it's interesting, the more I teach it to other people, like mostly what I've been teaching to other people is storytelling. And I've had to reverse engineer what, what, how I tell stories so that I can teach them. And now I'm on the side of having to reverse engineer how I pull the stories out of people. Because now when I work right. with organizations, they want their, you know, their marketing people to be able to pull the stories out of their product developers. And right. so I'm having to be like, well, I, I know that I do this, but how do I do this? But anyway, all of that to say, one of the things I always used to say just when I was teaching, you know, just for fun in my spare time is what you're trying to 
do when you're telling a story is you're trying to elicit a Freaky Friday style body swap between the person in the audience and you in that moment. And now I know the neurology is like, oh, that's exactly what you're doing because that's exactly how their brain responds. And so that's why it's so powerful you know and I think similarly I always used to say oh when somebody tells a story in a room where everyone's listening it's like there's an alchemy in the air and now I've realized it's not alchemy it's neurology it's everybody's brain lighting up in the same place at the same time like a giant benign alien invasion and and that's the energy that we feel and we've all had that whether it's one person telling a story to three people or to or to you know five thousand people we've all felt that energy and and it's just neurology it's just our brains all having the same exciting time at the same you know if we were to put us in MRI machines that's what we would see what so when you're working with people I'm I'm sure at this stage of the game because you've been doing this for a while now um Mm. what what is one of the most common things that people seem to neglect when they're starting out as storytellers so the most important thing that people get wrong is they think that narrative is is important, is the most important thing. And it's not. It's how you tell the story. Um, and really, it's more about zooming in on scenes, which, you know, mm-hmm. this is an improviser and somebody who runs mm-hmm. this podcast, that it's about granular scenes, action scenes. So I talk about how when you're telling a story, this is something I learned from the, the sentence I learned from my storytelling teacher, Sage Turtle, um, which which made everything fall into place for me. She says, when you're telling a story, you're making a movie inside your listener's brain. Yeah. And so if you had a whole that. movie that was voiceover, that would be such a boring movie. Um, and voiceover is like this embodied voice giving context and philosophy. So when somebody tells you a story where they're like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And, you know, I really feel that tells me a lot about what humans are. And it's like, that's that's their opinion, but it's not actually describing what's happening in the story. Or yeah. even montage is like little flash bulbs of pictures it's not very engaging. If you had a whole movie that was montage, what's engaging is the action scenes. But obviously any story that that um, covers any passage of time, you can't tell the entire thing in action scene because nobody has four months to listen to your story. And also because a lot of that action was boring. You were just lying down with your eyes closed, breathing in and out for eight hours while you slept. You don't need to describe that in real time. It makes me think of um, the one time I tried to read... And and uh, I mean, no slight to people who are obsessed with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, I, but I tried to read it and failed because I couldn't take another page of them walking. <laughs> I feel like some of this is subjective, right? In that some yeah, sure, because it love resonates really with a lot. detailed stories. Yeah. And also some, you know, some people need stories that just have joke, 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 joke all the way through. I think a lot of it is universal. I think there's a lot of like just rules that anyone can follow. I remember going to see, oh God, what was it? The, um, what was it called? The Gus Van Sant film that was kind of loosely based on Columbine. Anyway, I went to see it at the same time as a friend of mine did. And it was just one of those movies where I came out of the theater and was like, that is 90 minutes of my life. I am never getting back. And, (laughs) and there's at one point there's a scene and the scene is there's a kid in the hallway and then two other kids walk past and say, Hey, and they have like a really brief, very non-essential conversation. They showed that scene three times, once from each of the points of view of the character. (laughs) And um, but what was so funny was I there was me and this other friend of mine, Billy, and we were both telling a third friend about the movie, and Billy loved the movie. Oh, <laughs> and I yeah, hated wow. it. And Billy said there is this scene 
with one of the, you know, one of the like gunmen, but before they do anything bad. And it's just in this kid's basement and it's just the back of his head and he's playing the piano for five minutes and nothing happens. And I was like, yeah, nothing happens. (laughs) But for him, you know. (laughs) And so there's a certain extent to which, I don't know if you have this phrase or if it's just my people, but horses for courses, you know, different people, I guess different strokes for different folks is how you would say. Okay. All right. Um, Horses Horses for courses. (laughs) British horse obsessed. Um, So there is a certain extent to which, and people often say to me, how long should a story be? And oh, I'm that's like, well, a it tricky depends, one, isn't it? Because if yeah. you're sat in a bar with your best friend and you've just been through something, that story can probably be an hour and a half long. But if you're on music radio and nobody is tuning in to hear you talk, you have 20 seconds. And so <laughs> it really depends. You know, when when I, I did a talk last last summer, summer before last, I feel like last year we just don't count, but uh, I did a talk summer before last at this conference, the World Domination Summit, and it's like, yes. do-gooder entrepreneur types. And and I also, you know, I'm kind of, I've been going for seven years. I've run a couple of sold-out workshops there. Like, I'm known in that audience. I got a standing ovation before I opened my mouth to speak. <laughs> like, I feel <laughs> like I pretty much feeling. could have just, like, burped for half an hour and would have stopped. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, Brilliant. I really couldn't have gone wrong. And so with that, I just walked on and I just started telling a story because I knew that they would stay with me. But if you're presenting to the corporate board and you know you have 10 I just recently did a um uh what's called a presentation for the entire executive team of this giant national canadian corporate company and 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 it was in one of their meetings one of their vp meetings where they don't usually have a speaker and Mm. it's usually just them so so if i had gone in and just started with a story they all would have sat there being like what the hell is going on is why did you bring a motivational speaker into our midst so i didn't i did the thing of okay today we're going to learn thing you want to learn thing you want to learn um i'm going to teach you thing you want to learn and also another thing that i sort of half tell you but intrigue you and make you want to keep listening but first i'm going to tell you a quick story so i'm setting them up to be like, don't worry, I'm here for a good reason and you're going to enjoy it. And this story is going to be quick. Because if I did a storytelling presentation without telling a story, that would be pretty absurd. I think, although I have heard it done many times. Um, and so, it, so it's like really the length depends on context. The way you tell it depends on context, whether you need to kind of hold people's hand and be like, it's okay, it's just going to be a little story. And then once you start telling the story, you're probably fine. You know, if you do a good job of it. Than the the end. Well, I no doubt we could talk about storytelling for the entirety of our conversation. But the question of the hour is actually mm. uh, this idea of change. And I think you know, of all the people I've had on, perhaps you would appreciate the most. I guess I'll find out right now. This idea that we can understand the meaning of a word through storytelling. Mm. The whole purpose of this show is to explore this big. I call it a fat word. It's not intended to be shaming the word. Instead, it's intended to be descriptive because it's packed with so much meaning. And the word is change. Mm-hmm. And in my in my dive into this word, which is part of the name of my business, it's been part of my experience of forever. Um, I found that diving into people's stories when they think of what's the moment when I was changed, what's a fork in the road, everything changed moment, the stories that pop up help enrich this 
broad tapestry of understanding. Um, and so I'm curious to get to know, just before we dive into your story, just first impression um, of that word, when you hear change, what what meaning automatically pops up for you before you go to story? Or does story come up first? Um, I think story always comes up first for me. I think I like can't not think in stories. Even like, you know, I've, I've done consults with people where they're like, oh, I just want to be one of these people whose stories just naturally come to them and they don't have to practice them. And I'm like, we all practice them. We just don't tell you about it. Um, and so I instantly, when you say change, and, and as a side note, I think fat should always be a descriptive word <laughs> as opposed to. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I immediately start thinking about like, yeah, about things that have changed and things about me that have changed externally and internally you know I'm somebody who's moved across a continent and had two different careers and also somebody who's like thank you privilege had a ton of therapy and so <laughs> I've had a lot of both <laughs> external and internal change um, and actually just because I can't help talking about storytelling that's one of the things when I work with storytellers is to say if the change is internal that is not a good story because we can't there's no movie there um, again, right. it's hard to watch somebody sit and ruminate Right, um, as yeah. as the entirety of a story. Yeah, like, it would so be I such a boring and I movie. And I thought and I sat and I yeah. sat and I thought. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I mean, it's a great lecture. It's just not a good story. Before we get to your story, do you want to do something fun? Yeah, always. Okay, um, we're gonna do a rapid fire question and answer thing. Love it. So you're gonna, um, I'm gonna ask you questions, and then you're gonna, yeah. uh, you're gonna be limited <laughs> to like strive for three words or less just strive for that okay you know, this is going to be that rapid fire okay, okay? that's hard um, as a storyteller to keep me to three words but I'll I know try. right <laughs> want to be fun um okay so uh here's the question first question is um rearranging the furniture um yay or nay it's recently changed <laughs> Three-word answer to that question. Okay, ten years ago, rearranging the furniture. Yay oh, or nay? nay. Rearranging the furniture tomorrow. Uh, coming around to it. <laughs> I live with a I live with a keen furniture arranger, and so I've learned to appreciate it. Ah, okay. Um, when it comes to um, habit, mm. how often do you ch- attempt a change at a habit? Frequently, I would say. Okay. Yeah. What's the most interesting habit that you've changed recently? I did an art project a couple of years ago, um, which I made after... I didn't tell anyone about it until about a year and a half after it finished. And then I made a secret Instagram, which is Yes, Marsha Draws. But I did an art project where I drew a different self-portrait every day for a year. And sometimes it was what I looked like and sometimes it was how I felt and sometimes it was what I was doing. And I find it like calms my soul and clears my brain. And so now before I start work, I try and draw and I intentionally, so that I don't spend hours doing it, I have like six to the page of this, you know, it's the size of my palm, this small skin book. That's amazing. And so that's how I feel. And so there's one where I was asleep, but my hair was on fire because I just was very tired, but I had a lot to do. There's one where I'm like trying to be in the car, you know, in the movie Grease when they have like the the two the two races, like the what's the guy? 
and and Kaniki, isn't it? And there's a lady with the like scarf, the yellow scarf, who who like throws her arms up in the air to start the race. And so you can't really see it, but I was supposed to be the one in the car. That was more um, than three words. Favorite book? Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton. Favorite, favorite movie? Desperately Seeking Susan. Favorite way to start your day? Favorite way to start my day, and this is not a thing I get to do, um, is to switch on the radio, onto music radio, and lie in bed and contemplate life for 10 minutes. That's my favorite way to start the day. That does sound nice. What's the worst food? Worst foods used to be meat, but now I just don't eat any meat. Uh, chamomile tea. Thank you for playing rapid fire question answer game. <laughs> All right. Well, I have invited you, storyteller, to tell a story. Um, would you please, Marsha, share a story from a moment in your life after which things changed for you? So about three and a half years ago, I am sat in the coffee shop across from my house with my friend Chris. And he's like, what is it? <laughs> because I'm all like giggly. And I say, do you want to see a picture of the hot girl I just asked out on a date? And he's like, of course I do. Um, and so I get my phone out and I open up Tinder. And then I'm about to show him and I say, oh, she's she's left me a message and so I go to read it and then I just throw my phone down on the table put my arms in the air and he says what and I say she's pregnant he says what and I say she's pregnant and he's like what are you talking about and so I pick up the message again and I had just we'd been emailing back and forth and then I had said, do you want to go to this tea house? Because I find if I drink on first dates, then I just think everyone's great. And so I need to not be drunk. I've like gone on dates where for the first drink, I'm like, oh, this person's terrible. And then I've had the second one. And I'm like, they're amazing. Um, and so I'd invited her to go to this tea house. And then she wrote back and said, you should know. I am, was like four and a half months pregnant with a sperm donor. And I've been looking for someone to talk to and kiss until you know the baby's born at which point presumably I'll stop dating for a while but if that's you know if that means that you don't want to meet like maybe we might not even want to kiss but if that means you don't want to meet I totally understand and and I have my own like complicated child situations already with like a kid from a previous relationship and like other kids that are very much very strongly in my life and so yeah, and at first I was like, well, I can't do that. And then I went out for dinner with my best friend and she's like, she seems great. You've been having a hard time dating. Like, I don't think you should give up the opportunity for love. And so eventually I wrote back and said, well, okay. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, and also I have my own complicated modern family stuff. And so that's not a deal breaker, but the short term thing is because I just had been doing, you know, dating for a couple of years and I just had decided I just knocked a, a romance on the head actually with somebody else because I was like, I'm done with short term. Like I just am done. I'm ready to look for, you know, have to do short term in order to get to long term. But I'm, I'm kind of done with dating people where there's clearly never going to be a future. And so I wrote and said the, the pregnancy thing is not a deal breaker, but the short term thing is. And um, 
And then unbeknownst to me, she went for dinner with her best friend who said, you can't give the opportunity for her. <laughs> she seems great. And, um, and so we went on a date. And three and a half years later, um, that is the reason why I don't get to lie in bed and contemplate life, because a very small person wakes me up at 6 a.m. <laughs> And I have to go and uh, get her some milk and then get up with her and and sit around. And I luckily am a morning person in that I'm very stupid in the mornings, but I am very cheerful. And so I've been getting up almost every morning for three and a half years and I am very tired. But uh, what was life like before? Well, I mean, it had slowed down a lot because I did have a lot of kids in my life. And I, I mean, I, I also... I've, when I lived in the UK, drinking alcohol is our national sport in my yeah. mother country. And so I used to really, you know, did a lot for the team. And then, but I had kind of stopped, I think, a few years before. My therapist asked me to stop turning up hungover. <laughs> and I was like, you don't understand youth culture. <laughs> and then, um, but I but I also was a bit scared of her. And so I stopped. And so I, I sort of had stopped like going out on the Raz. And I also was 40 when this happened. So it wasn't like this happened at the age of 22. Um, but I did have a lot of time to myself. And that's, I think a lot of time to myself and I used to travel a lot. And so those for me were like the two hardest things to let go of and to come to peace with. And, um, but I'd done a lot of the kids stuff before. And so I hadn't done the like naught to three very much. Um, Mm -hmm. I hadn't done the like all night sleeplessness, like standing, singing the same song for 45 minutes and then putting them down and then them crying and being like, oh God, we're going to be here for another 45. Like I really learned learned that experience and she's like she's an amazing small person and not a good sleeper and so um but yeah I feel like those two were kind of the main differences was I used to spend a lot of time that was why I did the art project because I could draw a self-portrait every day but I stopped it three weeks before she was born because I knew that I would not have you know an hour I would sometimes catch up at the weekend so I'd sit for two hours just drawing in a cafe and now I'm like I didn't know I was born except I think I did I think I appreciated I had so many friends with kids and I had so many kids in my life that I knew I would always say to these friends, like, I want you to know that I really appreciate how much sleep I get. And they would be like, I hate you. Shut up. <laughs> but now <laughs> when I meet people and they tell me, they're like, Oh, sorry. I got a lot of sleep. I'm like, you sleep, you better sleep. Cause I can't, you got to sleep for me. Do it for all of us. Yeah. I love um, hearing about people who sleep well. <laughs> what do you think? Um, what do you think would have been, different I mean some uh, other than the obvious differences of you wouldn't be in this relationship or be helping to raise a small person um from ought to whatever um age they become in hopefully forever and ever um what do you think might have been different had you not taken the leap I mean, I was really on the fence about whether or not I wanted to grow my own children. Like when I was young, I always thought I would. And then when I got older and saw the reality, one of my best friends had a kid much younger than any of our other friends. And so I got to see the reality of it. And I was like, oh, it's really hard. <laughs> and it can be quite boring. And um, and so I was really on the fence. And I always said, um, if I end up long-term with a lady and she wants to have a kid, then I'll make her have it. That's what, that was like my glib joke line that I said. So that was kind of like when I met my partner, I was like, well, and I also was, was dating people who had kids because I had done that before. And so 
I was kind of like, well, I could have met her two years ago or I could have met her in two years, you know, and as it is, I've just met her now. And um, and so there's every chance that there would have still been um, some version of a small child in my life and my house. Um, and so I don't think it's like, I would have moved. To, and also I have this, you know, these other kids in my life that mean that I couldn't like go live in the Yukon for six months or whatever. Like that had already, I'd already gone through that sort of when I moved to Canada 10 years ago. So I already had that, like, I can't just go off touring around the world for 40, you know, I just wouldn't want to go off touring around the world for like two years without coming back. Um, I think, I mean, what was amazing was the first year, what, one of the things that was amazing was was really great to learn is how good I am at my job because I was so so tired like really being woken up every two or three hours for a year and I but I was really good at work (laughs) and because the adrenaline kicked in and I just wasn't tired while I was working and I earned more money and worked less that year than I you know ever had up until that point and and have continued to and have like figured out even things like with my one-on-one work I doubled my prices so that I would have fewer clients so I'd have more time and and at first I had fewer clients and freaked out I'm not getting as many clients and I was like oh no this is the point and you know started finding other ways of working that involved kind of short which has always been my preferred you know I'm always someone who left her coursework and her exams to the last minute I prefer to like go hardcore for three Mm -hmm, weeks and mm -hmm. then nothing um and so I feel like I just got into that quicker you know there's various kind of projects and non-profit dreams I have that that have been somewhat put on hold while I'm building capacity and catching up on sleep um but I don't know that it would have been that drastically different and then my heart already was like you know big full of one kid and then it just grew and that's that's the thing that everybody says, which I'm always surprised. It's just like, oh, I don't love the other kid. You know, it's not like they both have to jostle for room in my heart. It's like my heart grew even bigger than twice as big <laughs> to fit more <laughs> both of them. I mean, so this is the story that came up for you when you thought about um, what's a fork in the road moment after which everything changed. I think the question that I have now is how did it change you? Because it <sighs> sounds like this was a trajectory that may have happened. You might even ended up with the same person it sounds like just at a different point in time so but how how have you changed as a result do you think and I know that's a little tricky to unpack but what are your thoughts (laughs) I think I mean it's interesting because I feel like something hmm, so that's not a change that's a thing that's the same (laughs) um I mean I feel like I have this understanding of raising a kid that I only had parts of before um and I feel like what I'm always interested in is ways that I can connect to all different kinds of people like one of the things that I love about my job is that I get to hear so many different stories and get to have this understanding and and often it'll be things that like are never going to happen to me like I'm never going to experience racial discrimination that's not going to happen to me I'm a white lady um but I now can sort of touch how that feels like of course I'm not going to know how it feels but I can have some understanding and I feel like every time I have a new experience um like even every time I have a very hard experience like it sucks in the moment but one of the things in my you know I don't think that we should have to find gratitude and silver linings out of every bad experience but my tendency is to do that. And, and one of the things is like, now I can touch what it feels like to be there. So when I talk to someone who's been there, I can, I can like understand where they've been. Mm. Um, And so I think it like gives me more, 
you know, did, wonderful, but also, but kind of who cares about the wonderful, you know, whatever kids are amazing. Yeah. But like more really hard experiences that now I understand. <laughs> I saw someone the other day who I hadn't seen for years and, and, and I was like, Oh, do you have a kid? Yeah. Cause we were in the playground and I was like, Oh, you have a kid. And he was like, yeah, I have two. I have that one and that one. I went, yeah. And then I went, that's nice. And he went, yeah. And I was like, it's also terrible. And he's like, yeah, the worst. And so it's like, <laughs> but the best, and the, no, I think he didn't say the worst actually, to be fair. He said, it's all the things. And so yeah, I, feel like I have more of an understanding of all the things. And then I think beyond that, it's that, it's exactly that thing we were just talking about of like so much internal change. That's not interesting to tell people and if you saw me now and if you saw me five years ago I probably wouldn't look that different from the outside but I feel monumentally different inside and having like faced lots of challenges and then again thank you privilege had a ton of therapy to help me deal with those challenges and work through them and and um, you think some of that internal change is super interesting actually um but um I tend to crave like the short version of the story as it were Mm. like you know like um if someone is telling me over and over again, the same story about their internal state and where they are on their journey, that can be um, for better or for worse, really hard to relate to, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's difficult to give somebody who's in the midst of a struggle, for example, the type of empathy they would love to be able to elicit from people, but it's just, it's challenging to get there because it's so unrelatable. Yeah. Um, I'm not in your head having your journey. That being said, (laughs) um, that being said, knowing that um, someone was in one state of being and through an experience reached a different state of understanding of the world or different understanding of themselves, I find that really interesting. I feel like I've a lot recently feel like kind of look back on myself in that way. I had mm-hmm. I had like um, eating... I had an eating disorder. I didn't know it was an eating disorder because I thought there was only bulimia and bulimia and anorexia. And I wasn't thin. And so I thought that you, if you had an eating disorder, you got thin. Um, but it turns out I had one. It's called binge eating disorder. And it's where you just have no control over food. And and so I had, but I kind of had been like, had some stuff around food since I was a kid because I was a bit of a plump kid. And because the media and, you know, my 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 parents and grandparents were affected by it and, you know, in my, I feel like it would be with my mom, it was never ill meant, but she would talk about herself in certain ways, you know, modeling or, mm. and my granny would just come up and pat my thighs and go, look at this thighs. You could not be ballerina with fatty thighs like yours. You know, that's my granny it was kind of oh. a via herself, which always point to going, look at that fatty. If I was that fat, I would not wear clothes. And so anyway, so, so it's been since I was a kid and then pretty bad through my through my late teens and through my 20s and then I again you know privilege got therapy amazing read a great book called Overcoming Binge Eating by Dr. Christopher Fairburn and and now I will have I'm trying to think if I have one now I will like have a bar of chocolate in my desk drawer and it will just sit there for two weeks and that's amazing to me. <laughs> I'll have like the chocolate that I love will be on special. And so I'll just buy like five bars and then they'll just sit in my cupboard. Sometimes I don't feel like it for a week or two. And that's amazing to me because for so much of my life, I couldn't have chocolate in the house. Like I just couldn't have it because it would just be gone. And I would just, and I would kind of almost eat anyone. And I just never, ever, ever, ever thought that I could not be, weird around food. And so I say all of that to say, when I have a challenge now, like, like one of my things is if I think someone's upset with me, I'm 
completely destroyed by it. Mm. Um, and it can be, you know, you and I get up for a flight at three in the morning and then you're a bit crotchety with me because it's three in the morning. I will be like, oh my God, what did I do? Is Aiden hates me. I'm like running through every conversation I've ever had with you to try and feel. Yeah. And, and sometimes when that sort of thing, you know, shows up in ways that can be damaging and I, and I feel like, oh, I'm never going to get over this. And then I'm like, but you've got, but the food thing changed. And so what else can change? You know, and I think that's what I find when I think about moments of personal change, it's like looking at being like, but I got over the other thing. So maybe I can get over this thing, you know, in the way that like, again, I don't think you always have to take something good out of horrible situations, but when people are like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't think that's always true, but I think when you get through something awful, the next time something awful happens and you feel like I cannot survive this, if it's sort of the same level of as awful as the last thing or, or, less bad then maybe there can be a part of you being like well you did get through that other thing and so sorry Ooh, I love that I love that very much I'm going to tuck that away I think that's really um in my in my invisible pocket the stress has zero pockets um I I love that very much that idea that um these the victories that we have had of transfer in personal transfer wanted personal transformation or even um survival can be a, a kind of barometer for our capability of having those experiences that's really neat the right nice yeah or just for frame. me it's not even not even necessarily barometer but just like just like it's something to cling to you know and mm -hmm. i think to bring it back to storytelling this is where vulnerable stories are so important because it's somebody else saying, I got through this, you know, or even I didn't get through this and it was awful and I'm a little bit broken by it, but look, I'm here still telling you this story. And so I can't, okay. have, you know I, what? What can't I'm having a, me? I'm having a moment while I play with my microphone cover. Okay. I'm having a moment. So, um, so we just had two stories in rapid succession from you that are totally different that both fall under this umbrella of change and um this is one of the things that i've been noticing in general is when i ask people this question they either tell me a story of triumph or a story of struggle and overcoming mm. and you just gave us a little sample of both and what's what's just really interesting to me is um is i think it will be interesting to hear from listeners which which one is more compelling? Because as we were talking about at the beginning of this, um, you know, which one speaks to people more? That that's pretty subjective. Like you and your friend at the movie, and you were like, God, this scene couldn't be more boring. I hate this movie. And your friend was like, oh, he played piano, and you just saw the back of his head for five minutes, and nothing happened. It was remarkable. So, you know, I think um, it will be so interesting to find out from people what resonates more, uh, because there is this there's something exciting about an obstacle or a, or a trauma that's been overcome um a personal characteristic you wanted to change and then did you know whatever it is the story of like overcome something versus just like i got a one story from a from a guest a while back was like she told one story of like having to heal from making this huge life-changing decision but then the story that was like so exciting was this throwaway story from her where she was like I got a phone call on the Nile and was offered this remarkable job and it well <laughs> it, so it's like the opposite where like the the positive story was more compelling but it was like anyway I'm having a moment I'm still processing <laughs> you're you're witnessing all of my out loud processing but Love it. you know for me the whole uh, 
reason I want to do this podcast is to sort of unpack this this thing that is this idea of change and how it encompasses all of all of this, all of the above. But I I think, and I don't know if this will play into the change, but I think I think sometimes it's the context of the story. You know, if you get a phone call on the Nile, it's very different from if you get a phone call in your kitchen in Missouri. Right. You know, um, but I think that the Nile story can be told badly and the kitchen story can be told well. Um, but I think sometimes it's the context. But also for me, what's interesting isn't the overcoming, when I'm listening to a story, what 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 touches yeah. me about a story, isn't the overcoming, it's just the revealing of it having happened at all. Because, mm-hmm. um, so so I just I do this still do the storytelling show. We've moved it online for um, the pandemic. Uh, True stories told live Toronto. But we just had a storyteller, um, Lamia, tell a story about when their mum was coming to stay. They were about to have their first kid and the, they were due in two days and their mom arrived and immediately they know that something's wrong. And a week after their kid is born, their mom gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so then it's just the stories of this year of them raising a newborn whilst sort of shepherding their very beloved, very close to the mother um, and immediately came and lived with them. And, and oh God, it's such a beautiful story and, and so moving and like, their mum, the end of the story, their mum dies and, you know, no, no spoiler. And, and we don't see any of what happened afterwards. Like the, the, the mum dies and that's the end of the story. But in that story, they're talking about their grief. They're talking about like the panic. And there's a, there's a scene, I might cry telling you this, but there's a scene where they're sitting when their mum was having chemo to prolong. And it was, it was after a few months, it was really hard. And they're sitting on the floor and their mum is on the couch and she's rocking backwards and forward, moaning in pain, and they're holding her hand. And then the baby is on the floor. I am going to cry. And they're, and they're playing with the baby. And they're sitting there going, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. I don't know if this is okay for the baby. I don't know if this is okay for my mum. But I'm the only one here and this is all I can do. And so they send love to their mum. They send love to the baby. And, and that's not, they didn't overcome any triumph in that, but it's like just to tell a story where you say, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. It's so powerful. And when I do this work in organizations, I talk about how as leaders, if you want your staff to like you, let alone be engaged, let alone be productive, let alone be innovative, you have to show them that you're not a perfect robot. Because if you pretend you're a perfect robot, they're not going to bring you mistakes when they make them. They're not going to innovate because they're not going to do anything that might not work. They're not going to really be engaged because we don't, you know, when we, those people, when we run into them and go, how's it going? They go, oh my gosh, amazing. Like just got another promotion. Relationship (laughs) couldn't be going better. Kids listen to everything I tell them to do. We hate those people. And so if you present like that, but I think often as leaders, people think they have to present as perfect. Otherwise they don't have any, status otherwise they don't have any authority and storytelling is this super low stakes way to show vulnerability because because it's not about the narrative you can tell a story about 
going to buy a coffee and how you accidentally asked for a lute instead of a latte and then you felt like an idiot. But then the barista drew, drew a smiley face on your cup and then you felt better. And that tells me that you're not perfect because you did something stupid. And it also tells me that you're not perfect because you were embarrassed about the fact that you did something stupid. Because super cool people don't care. They're like, whatever, I said something wrong, deal with it. And so just to say I am not a super cool person is everything and it's so important as leaders and it's so important just as humans and I feel like that's where the magic happens for me in telling a story that I feel like even if somebody's telling you a change story I'm interested in the bits of that where they weren't perfect you know I'm interested in the yeah. bits even the story that I told you like that was the first one that came to me but like I guess the bit at first where I freaked out, where I wasn't like, wow, yeah, I can do this. Mm, I'm powerful. I can do anything. I can take it. No, it's pregnancy. where you right. were vulnerable and you went and asked for somebody else's opinion. Right. Like, what should I do? I don't know what to do. Yeah. What do I do? <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we tell stories um, in order to give ourselves a little bit deeper understanding of what happened. And by processing them with other people and seeing their reactions with them listening to our stories, it helps give us some sense of what happened. Oh, it was terrible. I can tell by the looks on everybody's faces. It's not just me. It definitely was terrible. Or, oh, everyone's laughing. It was really funny. I thought it was good. You know, whatever it is, it's like there's that exchange in discovering meaning together. Mm. Um, but I, I just am really excited by this idea. Um, you know, I've known for a long time that you can build relationship with people through sharing, you know, through sharing stories, you can build trust, you can build relationship. And as a leader, as you mentioned, you can, um, you can demonstrate enough vulnerability to help other people discover their own leadership. Right. Because if you can't pronounce the word latte, that doesn't make you any less good of a manager or a vice president or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and, but I also think it's like a little bit, it's this exchange this exchange like we're allowing each other to be changed by story because it helps mm -hmm. us to understand other people's experience and we're really compelled by the imagery of a person living or dying through a certain set of circumstances mm -hmm. even like one of the examples I give sometimes in storytelling workshops is Rosa Parks that if we think of the civil rights movement from the 50s and 60s a lot happened. There were a lot of people involved. It spanned many years. But what bubbles to the surface is Rosa Parks sitting on the bus refusing to move because stories are sticky and they travel through time and space. What's the last thing that you want people to take away from this conversation? What are your final thoughts here? What do you want people to know? Being a good storyteller is just, it's not a thing you're born with or a thing that you're not. It's just a set of rules that anyone can follow. And we all know that because we all have that one person in our life who they can tell any story and it's brilliant. And we all have been stuck next to that one person who we know did something interesting, but oh my gosh, when are they going to stop talking because I'm actually dying of boredom. And all that's happening is the first person's following the rules and the second person isn't. But anybody can do this and it does all of that magical stuff and it grows empathy. I believe that lack of empathy is the root of all evil. And so I think by storytelling, we're defeating evil because... When I can touch what it's like to go through these experiences, I'm going to be kinder to a person who is going through those experiences than I would otherwise be. And I might make decisions differently knowing what it's actually like to be on the other end of it. Like one of the ways that I've changed in the last couple of years is just by being in a relationship with someone who has a disability and who is indigenous. And those are two sets of experiences that I didn't know a lot about before. And now I do. And so now when I'm doing things, it's like, 
How can I make it accessible? Not because, oh, it's a thing I should do, but because I know how much it sucks to be, you know, if I went to an event and there was a sign on the door saying no marshes allowed in the building, I'd be like, oh man, I gave up my whole evening for this. And now I can't even get in the building. And that's what, you know, the reality for if there's not an accessible building and that somebody has a disability. And so, and, and, and hearing stories about, you know, it was through the stories that I've heard of my partner and other people, you know, and other disabled friends, it's like, oh, that sucks. As a, it, It's very different than the theoretical, mm-hmm. like, you know, and I think it's how, how we change everything with all the big issues, climate change and social justice and all of this. We need to have the stories so that we can actually be like, oh, I'm moved by this in a way that if you showed me a data set, I would not be. So anybody can be a good storyteller and being a good storyteller is how we're going to defeat evil. Thank you so much, Marcia Shandar. This was absolutely a delight. This was really fun. There is a reason that for the Change podcast, I've chosen storytelling as the way to unpack the meaning and the human experience of it all. Story is compelling, it's relatable, and it acts as a kind of time and space brain transplant machine with people. Because while we can't walk in another person's shoes, listening to their stories does in fact help us develop a deeper, richer understanding of what their experience might be. As we touched on in our conversation today, story does more than just play mind movies for us. It's the connective tissue that weaves through our collective experience on this planet. There will, of course, be links, links. There's always links in the show notes for these episodes. However, Marsha has generously put aside a set of resources for listeners of the Changed Podcast. So if you want to improve the telling of your stories, I would encourage you to visit yesyesmarsha.com forward slash art of change. Special thanks go to my family for their love, support, and patience. To all of you, of course, for listening. And to all of the amazing Changed Podcast Patreon page members, who I couldn't do this without. Art of Change Skills for Life and Patreon member producer, Dr. Rick Kirshner. Thank you for listening to the Changed Podcast. I'm Aidan Nepom, and I wish you the kind of experiences in life you're excited to tell stories about. <laughs>